Stream of Consciousness News Podcast with Stephen Jackson and Brandon R. Reynolds. So, uh, we're just talking about stuff. We're just talking about stuff. Stuff. There's so much stuff. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff. Like, Is that what we're going to be talking about today? We are going to be talking about stuff. Great. I think I've asked this before, too, about like what, like how much does all the stuff in the world weigh? Mm-hmm. A lot. A lot. Um, and we're going to be just kind of touching upon uh, certain select uh, categories of stuff. Um, first of all, uh, the idea of uh, plastics and the unimaginable amount of plastic that we both demand, consume, and discard. Uh, and we're going to be talking about how we, we don't really know as a result of the volume of our consumer uh, of what we consume we don't really know where things come from and you know w- what happens to them when we're through of them yeah it's just sort of the world that we live in is one in which stuff comes in front of us we use it or it uses us and then it goes away to somewhere and so not only is this uh show today going to be about the concept of stuff and the amount of stuff, but also the ways in which the idea of ownership has changed so that uh, we're not so much owners of things anymore. We're not possessors of things. We are uh, uh, users of a service, or to put it another way, the conduit through which people pass various things. Uh, and we're just we're just nodes in, in a network of uh, stuff, or just... less charitably, crap. Crap, and it's mm-hmm. just, f- and like food that becomes you know, a uh, waste byproduct. We are just consuming all of this stuff. And we produce these these waste products. And we, you know what, you know what, you know what people don't want to do with waste, Brandon, like individuals? Mm, they don't want to live near it. They don't want to deal with it. Yeah. They want it gone. And so with that, uh, we're going to get right into things today. My name is Stephen Jackson. I'm Brandon R. Reynolds, and this is Journos. Journos. Welcome aboard. One thing that I think of as being weirdly productized that passes through us and affects us all, uh, and that people have uh, had an annual ritual, sort of like the May Day, everybody dances around the Maypole, except yeah. the Maypole isn't a pole, but it's complaining, and that is <laughs> that is daylight savings time. The thing that's going to happen that's going to drive us straight into the arms of a paternalistic, very effective, very cruel dictator is that potential leader who's like, I'm going to get rid of daylight savings time forever. That person will run the show. Yeah, that's, you think so? Abolish term limits. It's, you'd say it's a, (laughs) that's it. That's That's the thing, that's the thing that's lurking in the future uh, to lead us into an authoritarian state. So we are recording this episode on November 10th, a few days after daylight saving time officially ended in 2021. We all set our clocks back uh, in the wee hours of the morning this past Sunday, also known as uh, falling back. We have fallen back. Uh, So I guess you would say that it's a fairly popular opinion to not like... Daylight savings time? Would you say? I, mean, I haven't seen one one defense of yeah. daylight savings. I've only seen kvetches. Yeah, you you know why? Why? Because 
I haven't uh, published anything supporting it. Oh no! Oh, Are you yeah. the one? Are you the, I'm the guy? I'm the oh, guy. Steven. I love it. You love daylight savings. I freaking time. love it. Yes. No, you don't. We're yes, talking I about do. something different. I'm We're talking. I, I swear. I swear to God, I love daylight savings time. It's Wait. Like... Well, let me let me clarify. Okay, go let on. me clarify go this on. before you plunge into what is, I'm sure, an ill thought out. Yeah. Schema. Any listeners uh, that we've gained are gone. Just blew them That's up. That's it. I've um, nuked, nuked it. I like daylight savings time in okay. that I don't want to turn it off. I want to make it permanent. Yeah. I just don't need this incessant toggling oh. year after year. No. Right? No. I mean, so so then you're on the same. So or so we're in solidarity here. You too like daylight savings time. You just don't like the discourse around it. Like objectively, you. I don't like, like it. that it changes. Oh. I want it to stay that way forever. Wait. I want to okay, be Arizona you, in this. You, so in other words, oh, it, it stopped. See. Okay, so, so it's, okay. it just ended. Yes. Right? I don't want it to end. And I want it to it. be locked in all year long. Okay, yeah. The so way that it is. I, will, I love changing. I, I love how it, how it jumps forward and back. Because we are, as a society and as humans, we're constantly at the whim of time. We're always kind of like set, uh, scheduling our days around places to be and we wake up at a certain time we go to bed at a certain time and all this stuff but then just two days a year we 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 fly in the face of that and we say no we're going to just f with time a little bit and everything is going to be really different all of a sudden yeah. and it's it's freaking cool because like okay in the fall i like it so uh, so the thing i don't like about it in the fall is the fact that you know the week or two before daylight savings time yeah it's too dark in the morning however suddenly overnight literally the the morning just comes earlier you get an extra hour of sleep and it's daylight earlier and the, yeah, the one lousy day yeah, but then, but but for this whole week, I've just been enjoying it. Just I've been enjoying it. I've been popping up and out of bed an hour early. I surf, so that's particularly nice to get out into the water earlier without like feeling as fatigued as I would at, if I were to have gone at that same time. And then, and then it's also on the other end of the day. Sure, it's like it, it's it's suddenly nighttime sooner. But then that too is like nostalgic and cozy, and like you, and it, it, it makes the night feel longer, which is nice. So all of a sudden, like right now, it's you know five fifty, but it feels like it's like eight p.m. But so you have all this time to use. Then in the spring, it freaking magically all of a sudden the days get way longer. Yeah, magically. That, that that's that. awesome. Yeah, it's lovely. It's like it, it just it it's there aren't a lot of um opportunities for us to sort of uh, get these little uh, bonuses in the uh, rhythms that we are sort of chained to throughout our daily lives. Yeah, I mean, everything you said, I think of as a, as a step against it. The night is longer. <laughs> what romantic era poet has ever said that and it meant something it's positive? Nice. I'm depressed longer. Uh, no, yeah, okay. No, the I, day I, ends sooner. You know, it's sort of like okay. uh, I, it's like I, my tuberculosis has gotten worse <laughs> earlier than I thought. That's the end of daylight savings. <laughs> Just keep it one way. Shoot. No, it's an unpopular opinion that I stand by. I will take this. I will die on this hill. I will die on this beautifully lit autumnal sort of hill. Right. It's it's yeah, got sure. the leaves are changing. It's it's dark earlier. 
Yeah, just the just darkness. Uh, the leaves ah. have fallen off the trees. It looks yeah. like some six-year-old nice. cut out of a of a Halloween setting. You know that they've done a poster. Halloween board. is over. We got the holidays coming up. We're reminded of that fact by this sort of crazy jolt of uh, unnatural manipulation of time. I don't know. And two, the uh, the crush of not only earlier evenings, but the crush of uh, the pressure of the holidays coming up, which means we have to go out oh. and buy stuff. Yes. Means oh. the consumption season is upon us, not just the tubercular consumption season that affects romantic era poets, but rather the season in which we have to go out in the in the darkness <laughs> and go buy stuff for our supposed loved ones. It is the time of consumerism. Uh, what I'd like to talk about first isn't so much the specific consumerism around the Christmas season, although this is connected, but I want to talk about our con our consumption of plastic. Um, stuff. The stuff it is around stuff. the stuff. And so much stuff is made of plastic, and so much stuff is made of the bad sort of plastic that you can't recycle. Uh, first of all, uh, Brandon, do you recycle? Well, yeah. I mean, in that I put things in a blue-colored tub and then that goes into a bigger blue colored tub yes. and after that i don't really know what happens to yeah, it yeah no no and uh i got i got bad news for you after that uh it uh, there's a good chance that it gets loaded onto an empty shipping container that brought stuff from mm -hmm. faraway lands to the port of los angeles and then it's sort of whisked back uh, the waste product of all this stuff is then whisked away in those empty shipping containers in this very handy fashion um and so far, so it good. Is, it's actually well, yeah so far so good but then it gets bad really quickly. Uh, there are estimates that um, uh, that less than twenty percent of plastic is actually recycled globally, um, and uh, we also we've obviously heard about uh, maybe you remember China saying in twenty seventeen that it would no longer serve as the quote world's garbage dump. This is uh, from an L.A. Times article that I'll get to in just a second. Um, they. So, so they stopped accepting plastic. I remember back in 2017, the whole sort of v this the the myth was busted that recycling was really happening. And really, what's happening is that we're taking our plastic waste and shipping it off to oftentimes uh, mostly poorer countries, um, almost exclusively poorer countries. And then after that, out of sight, out of mind. Um, Not a problem and, anymore. Because I, in part, because it became easier to produce new plastic because of weirdly because of fracking yes that made their more abundant uh oil yep. supplies yep and so i was like well i can make you a new bag i don't need to mess with this old one exactly and right. so that would be yeah virgin plastic creation and it's just more difficult to make stuff out of recycled plastic so this was all brought to my attention uh this week uh, through a wonderful piece uh, in the Los Angeles Times titled Trafficking of Plastic Waste is on the Rise and Criminal Groups are Profiting, report says, written by Anna M. Phillips, a staff writer for the LA Times. Um, and so it, it reminded me of this sort of recycling myth, which is crazy when you really think about it, and we'll get to that. Um, but the, one of the interesting components here is that uh, the the sort of recycling fraud and the in this dumping of what should be recycled material into landfills in mostly the global south uh, organized crime 
has stepped in um, to sort of help that process along the way, which makes sense, right? Because organized crime, you know, professional gangsters and such, they, uh, what do, what does organized crime do really well? Well, they serve the public what the public wants, uh, but not the stuff that the, maybe the government or a better, you know, sort of an organization recognized by the Better Business Bureau uh, will do. So, well, you know, they, they're in prostitution, they're in the drugs, they're in money laundering, and hey, you want to get rid of that plastic? You got some uh, strict new state law that tells you you got to get rid of some recycled plastic, but they don't really care how you do it? Organized crime will, will uh, step on in. California um, is actually a, a big um, uh, culprit here in terms of um, folks who are adding to this problem. Uh, a 2011 state law that was intended to reduce the state's resilience on landfills. Um, it, it, it basically said, told cities and counties that they needed to recycle 75% of the waste by 2020, but it doesn't ban them from exporting it. And... So it, we don't have uh, the appropriate facilities here or yeah. enough of them or big enough to yes. recycle California's plastic. Yeah. So stick them on a crate, yep. send them overseas to Malaysia, yep. Indonesia. And when we're sending these things overseas, uh, it's it, uh, what, what they're doing. And this is kind of crazy. They're, so they're filling up these shipping containers with plastic. And then they're sending them overseas where their initial, their ultimate destination is going to be like Malaysia or something. But the route that they send them on to Malaysia is so complicated and weird that by the time it arrives in Malaysia, they, it's hard to tell where the plastic originated. So it's all this crazy kind of, uh, it's like this obscuring of any detail that's that's going to make it very hard to prosecute. It's also, you know, if the scary organized crime folks are behind it, I mean, that's a whole nother can of worms. Um, so the idea here is we're getting rid of this plastic. Yeah. Lots of it. And yes. we're sending it to these other countries who don't want it. Yes. And normally they would dispose of it or there are laws that have been passed that prevent them now from doing it. Because it seems like some of them are tired of taking our crap yes so they're like no no more we're going to pass some laws that say you cannot give us this plastic anymore and in order to get around it these syndicates will send ships over but they will conceal their origin by sending them through all these different ports of call yeah so that by the time they get there the 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 port of malaysia or wherever says exactly so we'll basically take it i guess and then yeah they'll, they'll take it i guess even though they've agreed not to accept it but you know um by then the, it's too late they're like they're, oh god they got us again yeah the regulators will get there and because they they don't they have it all they don't know where to send it back to i see so they're stuck with it because they don't know where it came from very good yeah that was the piece that i, I didn't quite understand yeah so that's that's the thing about like the crazy shipping routes is like they're making it so it's like okay where are you gonna freaking send it they don't know where it originated right um and uh so they basically um this was all broken in this report um or, or brought to light in this report published this past monday of this week um uh, that said uh, you know basically the the swiss research group global initiative against transnational organized crime put this report out 
Um, they built upon a previous in investigation by Inter Interpol, and it just this report kind of maps maps this crazy interconnected web of middlemen and sometimes legitimate recycling uh, companies, and like then these organized crime groups and how they're just moving millions and millions of tons of this plastic from the United States, Europe, and uh, Australia to then. Uh, um, you know, Southeast Asia and countries Africa. in the global South, basically. Indeed, yes. Right. Um, where I, I was surprised, I guess, to realize to read that the plastics market, recycled plastics market, is fifty point three six billion dollars by twenty twenty two. Can you believe that? So no wonder organized well, crime wants. There's to get money in. there, uh, yeah. and you know, it's it's organized crime and and legitimate people. So. Uh, Biffa Waste Services uh, is one of the largest waste companies in Britain. Uh, back in 2019, it was found it was fined uh, 350,000 pounds, which is, uh, I guess, the article says equivalent to 470 thousand dollars today uh, for shipping contaminated residential waste to China that it had labeled as paper fit for recycling. So, um, you know, these people's, you know, they got people's hands are dirty here, um, and it all so what does this mean what is this how does this you know connect to this idea of stuff and this and our uh, unbelievable and the unbelievable uh, amount of stuff that we deal with uh you know what it sounds and feels a lot like uh brandon and it's a concept that uh you are particularly interested in flying cars <laughs> it's it feels, a it's a hyper object Oh, hyper object. I do love that. Um, I do love that. Go ahead and remind our listeners uh, the, the, what exactly what a hyper object is. No, a hyper object is a theoretical concept uh, that says there's a, something that is so, a concept, um, an entity, whatever it is, it is so large, so complex that we cannot encapsulate it in our minds at any given time. So, you know, evolution, climate change, uh the birth of the universe and then also like supply chains for certain things yes so you can't hold you can only hold a certain piece like yeah i know i know that blue bin is there i know that i just ate this yogurt yes. and i loved this yogurt but yeah. i don't i don't need the cup anymore let no. me put it in the bin yeah and then it's gone away and i yep. don't have to and i'm not able to and you can't even begin to grasp that all you cared about was your lemon curd and yeah. you know and the in that plastic Den Danon or Yoplay uh, <laughs> brand of yeah. yogurt that you just needed to have. Had and to have then it. now it's here forever and it's like uh, in Malaysia in three months. Now, right. uh, so it's so big and so massive that we can't grasp it. And that also helps fuel, helps in a bad way, fuel uh, this practice. It's too much. We can't get a hold of the idea of how much plastic we're consuming and discarding It's too much we're, plastic is too ubiquitous now in in civilization in our existence so the idea of where all that plastic comes from and goes you can't wrap your head around it and so it because of that organized crime and people who are savvy and again in a bad way um, can figure out ways to profit off of this uh, volume and um, get away with it because what's happening is too big to wrap your arms around. I think what you pointed out earlier that's so interesting about this, beyond just like this big economic question or this environmental question, is 
the fundamental idea that like where there's organized crime, it's just uh, an application of human cynicism, right? Like, yeah. uh, we don't want to deal with this. Somebody's got to take care of it. Okay, well, these guys will come in and do it. It's the same with, you know, uh, anything we're uncomfortable with, we don't want a resolution for. Like, what's the appropriate way to regulate sex work or drugs yeah. or any of these things? Like, well, you know, the government will say, uh, cut it off at the knees, outlaw it, ban it. It's illegal to do. So we're just not going to deal with the problem. But then the desire is a human one. They want these things. And so somebody has to come along and create this black market for it. Indeed. So now you have, I mean, in this weird scenario, now we have like discarded Yoplait containers somehow occupying the same conceptual space as sex trafficking, whatever that means, yeah. right? Like yeah. the, the fuzzy idea of sex trafficking or drugs or uh, gambling, you know, all of these things that are very human. But the yeah. idea that we don't want stuff in our space, I think, is is the one that's most profoundly American because we expect it and it goes away. Yeah, and I mean, you know, the, the mafia also domestically has long um, had a stranglehold over waste management, right? I mean, that was no. like a, a, uh, the fact that that was the a central a component of like Tony Soprano's empire is based on fact, right? Like it's easy to sort of have monopoly on those things. It's not just theoretical that, 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 you know, uh, the illegal discarding of plastic and, um, you know, prostitution and human trafficking are, are, are in these similar spaces actually quite literally. And this is according to that report. Um, waste recycling companies are getting accused of engaging in, human trafficking as a way of sourcing the cheap labor okay in order to sort of facilitate move this stuff move this around stuff around yeah and so it makes you wonder like what is my relationship to stuff like like what what is all this freaking stuff and like where did it come from it's so big it's that hyper object i can't begin to imagine where all the different components and how all the different components of the desk lamp that I'm looking at right now came together, were manufactured, were assembled, were packaged, were shipped, were driven, were, 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 were what's it called floated across the ocean and then removed from a, from a shipping container and then put on a truck and then put in a store and then advertised to me to buy and then I take it home and then I have it for a few years and then ah, I don't want that anymore because, you know, whatever my perception of what I want has changed via the internet and television and now that thing is gone and what happens to it afterwards I don't know that's you don't crazy know. you don't want to know well I yeah no I don't want to know I mean I, I'd like to say I, I mean I think when I think about it of course I want to know like I want to be a better person you know what I mean but I guess like in practice there is this central apathy of uh, of collective apathy that is also uh, allowing this to happen. And it is changing, right? There are people, you know, we're bringing the tote bags to the grocery stores, yada, yada. Sure. I think that we all would like to be better, but there is still a larger collective apathy that is uh, that is allowing this to happen. And, this, and, you know, organized crime, they see they, it loves a vacuum, right? If there is... Uh, if people are want something and they don't really care how it gets there or how it gets done, they got they got guys, they got guys willing to help. Don't don't threaten me. Hey, hey, no. <laughs> no. I like yogurt. I'm not gonna apologize for it. Hey, uh -huh. Uh -huh. Yeah. like that yogurt? Don't like it? You don't like it 
rotting in your kitchen, smelling sour, just put it in that little uh, blue bin. We'll call it recycling. The flip side of this story of getting rid of things altogether and us not having an appetite for things after we've used them is this cohort of people who have things and then want to keep them. And that means if the things break down, uh, you want to be able to repair them. Uh, you want to be able to use your stuff for longer. So there are uh, there's built-in obsolescence. We've talked about this idea of planned obsolescence. Stuff's supposed to break down. Quote, supposed to break down. Yeah. Um, and there is now this movement called the right to repair movement, which I have mentioned on previous episodes and which continues to fascinate me. Right. So we have constant products coming out, you know, washing machines, cell phones, TVs, cars, uh, combines from John Deere. Mm -hmm. All of these things are made. People buy them. They spend good money on them. There's an investment that they make. And many people feel like if there's a problem with that thing and they have the know-how, they should be able to fix it. And for a long time, certainly before the era of, you know, software and microchips and, and computerization of all these things, uh, you could do that. You could just fix your toaster or whatever. Um, but there has been this sort of lockdown that's come from corporations where they don't want you to mess with the thing once they've sold it to you. Right. And to do so, yeah, that's to do weird. so, to do so then violates uh, the the terms of purchase, okay, or it violates warranty. And so there's a whole legal thing right so now. So is that is that basically the uh, stick that they that that they have at their disposal is that if you do do X, Y, and Z to this, uh, in most cases, I'm imagining expensive product that you mm -hmm. void your warranty. Absolutely. So Apple does it with the iPhone. Google does it with its products. Amazon does it with the Alexa. All of these things. Basically, if you crack the hood on this stuff, you're going to void the warranty and you're sort of on your own. And then furthermore, they have ways of, of you know, bricking that thing. So you can't use it if you mess with it. And so all of this is this talking about a secondary market. This market is designed to um, make sure that they have control over that product even yeah. after you own it. So there's still this sense of control that extends into your house, right? Yeah. And so a lot of people don't like this and they say, we wanna be able to have the right to repair. Yeah, can you give me like a specific example of that though? The funniest one and the one that I enjoy the ins and outs of as though it were a soap opera is the saga of the McFlurry. Oh. So in the case of the McFlurry, there's a machine that uh, makes the McFlurry, right? And that machine is manufactured by a company, and that company um, makes them, sells them to McDonald's, and McDonald's then puts them into their various franchises. Okay. And these things are notorious for breaking down all the time. And it's either because there are a lot of parts problems, or they're not very well designed, or that there's, again, this sort of planned obsolescence to break it down, because then the company can come in and get paid to do the repairs on this thing that keeps breaking down. Yeah. So here comes this company called Kitch, K-Y-T-C-H, okay. which developed software that it would sell to the McDonald's to fix this thing for cheap. So you could, your McFlurry's on the fritz. Uh, and this... What's on the fritz and how is it fixed by software? It seems, feels pretty mechanical. Like how high tech are these McFlurry Everything's machines? got software in it now. Everything's got software. That's part of the thing. It's not necessarily a mechanical problem where like, oh, something seized up because too much McFlurry happened to it. Yeah. No, it's like, it's like a software issue. It's like, oh, this thing keeps freezing 
in a technical rather than a I was about, you know, I was temperature sense. Okay, I'm glad yeah. you came around yeah. to that. Okay. So it's, it tends to be that, and that's yeah. part of the thing that makes things so frustrating. To the and it, it happens so much that there's actually a site called McBroken where you can track. It's got a listing for every single McFlurry and wow. every McDonald's, and it will tell you how many, which ones are on the fritz, which ones are working. That's... So, for example, I went on and I found out that the McFlurry machine, machine, I found out that the McFlurry machine at the McDonald's in San Francisco at Fisherman's Wharf, yeah, right, right next to Madame Tussauds, uh huh, not working. Uh, so yeah, 2019, the startup kitsch comes in and says we're gonna offer you software that allow you to fix the thing. So it's they a startup. If they still had to do the lame startup. It sounds kitsch. K-Y-T-C-H. Yeah. yeah. They had to do a weird spelling. Yeah. Um, but they were so successful that they reached a $50 million valuation. So wow. then the company that made the McFlurry called Taylor came in and supposedly like ripped off some of their technology, right? To this thing. Um, all of which led to a lawsuit from uh kitsch to taylor blah 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 it's still pending it looks like they're going to win this thing but it it raises who's gonna win the thing it sounds like kitsch is going to because they um sued this company in may of this year accusing them quote accusing them of illegally copying kitsch's product in order to protect a multi-million dollar repair racket it kind of feels like um any summer camp movie where it's like the plucky Mm -hmm. new guy new upstart and then they're up against the face of this legacy business yeah but it's weirdly not as straightforward as that because it's like mcdonald's is somehow in the middle of it it's like the it's the medium in which this thing is going on that's what's fascinating to me is that mcdonald's doesn't own the mcflurry machine when i think about a mcdonald's i think about it it's so we're all so indoctrinated by the brand that i think that all, everything in mcdonald's is just part of mcdonald's so it's crazy to think that there's like elements of each franchise that are outside components in any way right exactly are they standardized is there only one mcflurry machine do they have a market yeah. cornered so there's, there's one. one mcflurry machine that's right so they make the machine they sell the machines at McDonald's. McDonald's puts them in the franchises. When they go on the fritz, which, as I just mentioned, they do all the time, mm. according to McBroken, there's something like 8.5% of all the machines are broken right now. Wow. What's the point of that index other than gripes? Or is it like what? It's very, it's very gripe forward. Just to illustrate <laughs> how <laughs> crappy these machines are. Um, so then, yeah. So they then they come in and they fix the machine. Okay. Um, and this is... Uh, this is a practice that antitrust law calls tying, right? Where you make the product and you say, we're going to avoid the warranty if you mess with it. So therefore you have to use our vendor. So you're tied into this sort of ecosystem now where it's like, I just wanted to buy a product. You it know, sounds like organized crime. It sounds like the mob. In the lawsuit, they actually say, call it a multi-million dollar repair racket. That's racketeering, wow. baby. That's Rico, baby. Five will get you ten. Yeah. Okay. Um, anyway, <laughs> so you see this for all kinds of products, uh, certainly with appliances, right? They're, um, the Association of Home Appliance Manufacturers, which yeah. includes like Whirlpool and Panasonic, um, they all hate right to repair. They want to make sure that you uh, hire somebody to do it, Okay. And they don't know that person that you're hiring, the repair person, but that's somebody who's licensed to them. So they kind of have a hand in it. Are they getting a piece of that licensing too? Well, some of that, yeah, because they might have a training program that the repair person has to 
take on to learn how to repair this dumb thing. And again, a lot of it's software based. So yeah. it's really about like learning how to plug this into that and you know what the code looks like or whatever. Um, so you might say to yourself, well, okay, you don't want us to hurt ourselves taking apart this washing machine. Um, why don't you print a manual? It's like, well, we're not going to print a manual. We don't want you to know any of that. All of that is protected information. Yeah. Right. And and it becomes even weirder when you think about again that it's that you're getting into the Internet of Things. You're getting into the idea of every one of our appliances is all networked to other things. So a big part of it is that that these companies use to protect themselves is to say, look, there is a cybersecurity risk if we put out manuals that just let you willy nilly repair stuff. And that's kind of a weird cover, but it does produce weird stories like the time uh, a couple of years ago, 2017, hackers broke into a casino, an unnamed casino in North America. How? How? Through the fish tank. What? Through a networked fish tank that had Wi-Fi. Oh, access. I love this stuff. Remember everybody lost their credit cards because it targets air conditioners? Yes, exactly yeah. right. Same yeah. thing. Same thing. So, so those risks are real, but the mm -hmm. solution that these companies have is not to certainly make their security better. It's to say, oh, no, we're going to try and control who can get at this stuff. Yeah. And, and so again, how do, like that's all cover. Yeah. So like but so that's that's an interesting class of stuff. Big, mm -hmm. expensive objects yeah. that are that are intended to break down that must then be serviced by people licensed by the manufacturers of said broken products. That's right. Or alternately, well, yes, that's a part of it. But the other thing is, um, you know, if you have a group of people, the internet's taught us anything. It's like, if you get a bunch of people together swapping information, you have this aggregated intelligence. So, yeah. you know, if the average washing machine is just allowed to be worked on, then people on Reddit or whatever are gonna be like, oh, here's how you fix all of these problems. Totally. And you're gonna have these products that last longer and longer and longer. Mm -hmm. Obviously that doesn't do the manufacturers any good. They need them to crap out so that you get a new one. Yeah. And then now you suddenly have the, the same issue that arises where they're gonna go on a shipping container on the way to Malaysia. Yeah. And so what are they doing to stamp out the right to repair movement? What are the these companies doing? Yeah, yeah. Well, so Joe Biden has been in favor of right to repair. That was one of the things that he was pushing pretty hard as kind of a corollary to the antitrust movement, right? You don't yeah. want companies to be too powerful and have complete control of the market. So he's been pushing for that, along with the Federal Trade Commission, which is as of like July and even more recently, starting to pass new rules that say, essentially, people have the right to repair stuff. And it's illegal for you to say that the warranty is going to be voided if you mess yeah, with it. Yeah, so that's kind of these... crazy. Like, yeah. now that you think about it, you bought it, you own it, and then somehow there's, like, regulation on how you use it? Yeah, exactly. That's this thing crazy. you bought, that you made a contract, I'm going to pay you money today here in this Best Buy for this thing. I'm going to take it away, and historically, that thing is yours to do with whatever you want. If I yeah. want to take a bath in my washing machine, they can tell me, no, don't do that. But it's like, you can't prevent me from doing that, right? I think, though, at the same time, the corporation, they have to have some rights that pertain to when they can void a warranty. Sure. Right? That also has yeah. to be oh, yeah. that. There, there has to be that within reason. You know, I can't, like, you know, take a bucket of red paint and pour it over my my Apple laptop 
and sure. then say, hey, I need a new laptop, right? I mean, there yes. has to be certain. So that's interesting because yes. there is reason. I think uh, both sides have to be reasonable. And, you know, the corporations have to have some, be allowed to have some protections. But the difference there is you can say, well, we'll void the warranty. But companies will go the next step because, again, so much of it is software-driven. Yeah. Like yeah. Uh, with the iPhone, right? You can't mess with the iPhone. And if you do, not only does the warranty get, the warranty get voided, yeah. but the actual item will get bricked. So yeah. there's, a, there's a kill switch that's built into that that says, we're going to keep you from messing with it yeah. by shutting the thing down. Yeah, and by so bricked, you mean this, by bricked? I think you mean this happened to my friend actually. He was uh, tinkering with his iPhone 11, right? And then he pressed this button, and then a white van pulled up in front of his house and they threw Sounds a brick in his window. No, no, that's a different thing. And he was probably doing something else that was illegal. Now, imagine if you're a farmer. Yeah. Same thing happens, right? Okay. It's the exact same thing, except your iPhone. Is, is a million dollar combine. Yeah. Which historically you buy that from John Deere, your farmer, and you can do all kinds of stuff. You can attach it to a different thresher. Mm -hmm. To there's all these different options that you can attach to your big John Deere items, right? Yeah. Well, there's been a change in the last few years wherein because of software upgrades and things, there is a a, a linkage between uh, the product and the software. So farmers want to go in and modify their stuff. You can't do it. Now it's not compatible with anything. So that's a huge part of the right to repair movement is among the ag world yeah. where people, particularly against uh, John Deere, because if you pay $800,000 for a tractor or something, you want to be able to do stuff with it and attach it to other machines. And why things. do tractors cost what, what that much money? $800,000? I mean, I think that's for a combine, which is like a, you know, that's like a... It's, I hate to do this. What's, what's a combine? Yeah. The combine is the... Is it something thing. that you combine with other things? I believe that the term refers to something else, but I think it's, a, it's, the, it's the contraption that goes through the field, threshes all the wheat, and mm -hmm. then processes it and pushes it back into a thing and bales it and all ah, that Ah, okay. Stuff. It combines things. Combines things. It combines. You know? so it's not just you know. It's not. A, it's not a Prius that's taking you <laughs> to the skate park. It's doing yeah. something very important for the American eating way, way of life. And you know mm -hmm. that's no, also interesting it, that you bring up the farmers too, because um, I was talking to my dad about uh, this whole plastics thing, and you know the this crazy sort of mysterious journey of all the stuff that we surround ourselves with. And sure. so there's this. You know, coming back to this idea of stuff and why and how we value certain things, I think there's a weird. So let's think like what makes something valuable? It's like, for example, yeah, why? Let's start with the combine. Why is that $800,000? But like, really, why can someone charge $800,000 for that? Well, because if you think about the fact that that's an essential part of the economy of your farm. You can do the math and figure out how quickly you'll pay that off. Just like if you spend $30,000 on a car and you think, well, it's taking me to my job and back. Yeah. And it's taking me to the grocery store and back and doing all these things. Like mm -hmm. you quickly see that it pays for itself. But this yeah. is even more directly related to the manufacture of things that lead to your livelihood. Mm hmm. So, and then like a piece of plastic, like we don't, I mean, this sounds silly, but. Why don't we value an empty yogurt cup? Why is that completely valueless? We do. We value it exactly as much as it serves a purpose. 
the tractor is designed to process land and pull crops and do all these things. And it does that. And when it does that well, without you having to mess with it so much, then you're like, it's done. It's, it's doing its job. That's what I'm paying for. Mm-hmm. With a cup of yogurt, it's doing its job 100% by holding that yogurt. If it was not holding the yogurt, if the yogurt was seeping through the bottom and it was full of holes, then it's not doing its job very well. Yep. But also, once you've eaten the yogurt, it doesn't have a job anymore. So it's it quickly becomes waste. Waste. And it, yeah, it's the same as like a 15-year-old washing machine that has done its duty and is now just not working anymore. Yeah, right? and it would cost, a, and then there's it would cost more to fix it than buy a new one. Or people are making it very difficult for you to fix it affordably. So they want yes. you to right. make that decision to just buy a new one. Correct. Yeah. So, so yeah, you kind of have two different things at work there. One is the the hubris that we had early on because plastics suddenly were so easy to produce in the fifties and did so many things really well that used to be more labor intensive. You'd have to make them with glass or with wood or some other thing. And now it's like, well, containers can be made of plastic. And now here we are decades later going, oh, this stuff stays around forever. And also there's all these terrible downstream effects of like microplastics getting into the biosphere, right? Yeah. And that's all because we just wanted this convenient way to hold our yogurt. Yeah. So that's sort of one thing, one kind of waste. And the other kind, again, is this manufactured product that's bigger, that's a machine that we need. And now you have these companies that are sort of rallying around the idea that we're going to control that thing forever. Yeah. As long as it's in your house, we're going to control it. And therefore, what's uncomfortable about that and what underlies the right to repair movement is that they're controlling us. They're yeah. still making decisions. Like every time um, a company, a software company says, we're not going to offer tech support on this product anymore. They're saying, you can't use this thing anymore. Yeah. We've eaten the yogurt for you, you know, or you're done eating that yogurt. They have turned that yeah. thing into trash. And in that way, this other weird thing happens, speaking of uh, speaking of seasons and daylight savings time, you have your life converted into these consumer seasons, right? It's like iPhone uh. 12 season. It's <laughs> iPhone 15 season. Yeah. You know, the new Tesla's coming out. Like these are the things because they're controlling the debut. And that also means they're going to control when the previous version is, is done. Yeah. Right. And there's like a whole sort of huge machine that we haven't really di- uh, talked about, which we likely don't really have time to give it um, the attention it deserves. But the, the what's fueling this advertising and media and, you know, like the whole machine of selling these products and, you know, manufacturing that demand for these manufactured products, right? So that's like right. a whole industry too, where, um, so sure, you can still have an iPhone 7. We're going to make your life a living hell trying to use it. But yeah, sure, keep it. Fine, be a dork. But there's also, that's not enough. They need to sort of get it into the groundwater that you need to have the iPhone 12 and that you need to have the next thing. And that if your laundry machine is needs fixing, hey, you know what? you might as well get this new smart washer anyways because of this, that, and the other. So, like, there's all of this stuff. So, it is, so again, we're talking about stuff today, people. I hope you're grasping that word stuff. That's what we want to – we want you to be thinking about this. What we can't stop thinking about is this notion of stuff and where it comes from. And then also, why are we demanding that it come to us so quickly and so cheaply? 
And that has to do with this idea of stuff being, we're, we're being sold the idea of needing the stuff. And then we're sold the idea that it's okay to discard the stuff as soon as it no longer has this determined value. Right. I mean, what I think is funny is that even though these things are all ostensibly products, really what's happening is that everything is becoming a service. Yeah. Like if you lease a car, you're going to have that. That's like, a, um, I've got a new car. And then at the end of the lease, you have the option to buy, but they really push you to lease a new new car. Yeah. Right. So you never own the car, but yeah. you're instead, you're instead subscribing to a service. Yeah. Right? It's like a faucet that you turn and yeah. what comes out of it is always new cars. A car is never allowed to become old. Okay. Yep. And an iPhone is never allowed to become obsolete. You're always replacing it with something else. And so in that way, you know, so too the, the, the yogurt cup is also in a way a service. The yep. service it is providing is just holding food long enough for you to consume it. And then it goes on its way, mm -hmm. all of it going out somewhere else. Yeah. But we, again, like nothing, everything is just this like river of stuff that never really lives anywhere. And as we're using it, we never belongs to us. We're only sort of passing through its lives in some sort of sad romantic way. Yep. And that's why I think the right to repair movement while being really wonky is also sort of heroic yeah. in this weird consumer way. It's like, totally. we want to hold on to this stuff longer and we don't want you to tell us that. I mean, again, at the end of the day, you know, this is not necessarily solving world hunger or anything. It's like, you know, I just want a familiar dishwasher. Yes. And I want to be able to run it the way I want. And yeah. so, you know, it feels like a small victory, um, but it's ours. This show has been dedicated to the those makers. who the makers, those who repair. Yeah, yeah. Um, and this has, been, this has been a good hour of stuff. Indeed. We How do I undedicate something? Like, what if I if I want to dedicate something to this? If I want to dedicate something to those who repair and those who you yeah. know try their best to repair things and keep things from going into the landfill, that's who this show is dedicated to. What's the opposite of that? A curse on the houses of... And I curse the manufacturers of plastic and those who right. uh, are, 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 are perpetuating this idea that um, it's okay to have a, a thing and just get rid of it and never think about it again, uh, despite any consequences that it clearly... Um, despite any consequences that will clearly occur as a result of just discarding all these millions and millions and millions of tons of plastic. A curse on you! Sir. That's fair. It's very uh it's very Macbeth of you. <laughs> is it maybe it's is it okay to end a podcast with a hex? Yeah, why not? All right. This is Ben Journos. I'm Brandon R. Reynolds. And my name is Steve Jackson. See you next time. See you next time.